Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Take a quick break from Colossians, look at this similar epistle of Philippians. Let us join our hearts together in prayer, asking for our God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Great God, we bless You for the hymns we have just sung and the truth that they witness to and and impress upon our hearts that we have in Jesus Christ, an all-sufficient Savior. And we ask that now in the reading and teaching and preaching of Your Word, You would awaken our hearts and open our eyes to see the all-sufficiency, the over-abundant sufficiency of the only Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. And for those who are here who do not know Him as Savior and Lord, who are seeking to establish their, their own works as the basis of standing with you, would you humble them to the dust and bring them to saving union and communion with Jesus Christ? And for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus as all-sufficient Savior and Lord, may we grow in glorying in Him as the one who loved us and gave Himself for us, to find in Him more sufficiency for our every need, and that we would put no confidence in the flesh, but worship by the Spirit of God and glory only in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in His name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Look at verses 4 through 6, but I'll begin reading from verse 1. This is God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Philippians 3 is surely a high point in Paul's epistles in which the Apostle Paul helps the Philippian church to combat the false teaching of the Judaizers, and as we'll see this evening, from an autobiographical standpoint. The the beginning of chapter 3 Paul highlights the difference between false Christians and true Christians. The false Christians 
in particular are the false teachers that are corrupting, are seeking to corrupt the Philippian church, a group known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are Jewish legalists who say, in a nutshell, that salvation is by faith plus works. Faith plus the works of the law, especially circumcision. These Judaizers are emphasizing confidence in self, looking to self for establishing right standing with a holy God. Self-righteousness, self-performance, works of the law. Yes, you may make use of Christ as much as you'd like, but in the end, it comes down to what you do as well. It is a Christ plus gospel. And Paul there in in verse 3 emphasizes that it is not the Judaizers who are true believers, those who seek to add to Christ, who seek to supplement something in addition to Christ. It is those who look to Christ alone, who are true believers, who have true right standing with God now and forever. And it's important that we appreciate the beginning of chapter 3, as we will focus this evening on the middle of chapter 3, looking at Paul's own past achievements and privileges, picking up especially in verse 3, for we believers, all believers, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A couple things on verse 3 just by way of introduction before we get into verses 4 through 6. Notice how the issue at hand is circumcision. Circumcision was said by the Judaizers to be the thing, a key thing that you must have in order to have right standing with God. Yes, you you must believe in Jesus, but you also must have circumcision in the flesh, the removal of the foreskin for the male member of the covenant community. And it is sadly ironic the way the Judaizers use and, and the significance they attach to circumcision Sadly ironic the way that the Apostle Paul himself, before his conversion, saw the significance of circumcision. They radically reoriented it, they radically redefined it to take what was the sacrament of God's grace, going back to God's covenant with Abraham, and they changed it and distorted it into an establishment of works righteousness by sinful man. You see, With Abraham, God did not invent circumcision. God utilized the practice of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ from other tribes and other groups of people, whether Shemitic or or otherwise Gentile. But what's interesting is the way God radically redefined the use of and practice of circumcision. Among the pagans, circumcision was used as a tribal badge. It was not given to the eight-day old infant male, it was given to the young man who proved himself and who made himself worthy to be part of the tribe or of the community. And in God's covenant with Abraham, God takes this practice of circumcision and turns it on its head, saying in so many words, this sign of circumcision is not a mark of your belonging, of your worth to belong to my covenant community. It is a mark of my grace upon you, of how you belong to me, not by what you do, but by my free choice to bring you into my covenant community. Circumcision being the, the removal of the, of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ showed in part 
that human nature, even in its very source, is corrupt and in need of change. It was a physical thing that had highly and inherently spiritual significance. That's why you see in Deuteronomy and also in the prophets, Jeremiah, for example, that the call is to be circumcised, not physically only, but have the foreskin of your hearts removed. So the physical sign of circumcision pointed to an inward need of cleansing, of having a new heart with new desires that only God can provide. And so what is sadly ironic about what the Judaizers were doing with circumcision, the significance they were attaching to it, what was sadly ironic about what the Apostle Paul was doing prior to his conversion the way he conceptualized circumcision was he was taking an inherently gracious thing from God and making it a legalistic thing from man, making something a sign from God as a mark of God's grace. You belong to me and you need my grace to have your heart changed, your old heart of sin removed and be given a new heart of holiness and righteousness taking that grace-filled significance of circumcision and making it a law-filled significance. I've done this thing. I am circumcised physically, and therefore God owes me eternal life. That was the sad distortion of circumcision done by Paul prior to his conversion and by these false teachers, the Judaizers, who insist that you need this mark to establish yourself as worthy of eternal life from a holy God. That's one point of, of introduction for, for what Paul goes on to elaborate in verses 4 through 6. One more point of introduction is notice how in verse 3, Paul says that we who are the true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, those who have taken hold of Jesus Christ who was circumcised not in one part of his body, but in his whole body as as the representative sin-bearer of his people, was cut off as he was crucified on the cross and was cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53, in order to bring his people into the land of the living, into union and communion with the triune God. That is who the true circumcision is. We who trust in the circumcision of Christ, who was cut off from God's presence because he bore our sin in our place and paid for that sin in full, we who have that, whether externally or not, we have true circumcision of the heart. Those true believers, verse 3, worship by the Spirit of God, and then to the end of verse 3, and put no confidence in the flesh. So as Paul sets up his own autobiography, his own past privileges, and his past accomplishments in verses 4 through 6 that he no longer cares about, he is setting up the contrast that we see all throughout Paul's letters, as well as in the teaching of Jesus and elsewhere, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Now, very briefly, to cover a, a very deep and very significant uh, motif and teaching in the New Testament, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit is summarized by, by Jesus in John 6.63. It is the spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help at all. That in a nutshell is the contrast, the antithesis, the irreconcilable difference between the flesh and the spirit, capital S, spirit. 
This is not about the material, bodily, and immaterial soul aspect of the human person. This is a historical contrast. What is of this present evil age, flesh, and what is of the age to come, the new heavens and new earth, spirit. What is fleshly is impotent, is inadequate, and because of sin is positively evil, and it is repudiated by a holy God. That is what is fleshly. In terms of how Paul talks about the the dead body of the believer in 1 Corinthians 15, it is earthy. It is of a earthly quality. As opposed to the spirit, just the opposite of flesh. If flesh is earthly, then spirit is heavenly. If flesh is impotent and weak, spirit is, is powerful and life-giving. Fleshly is, what is fleshly is death and deadly, and what is spirit is resurrection, not only living and, ne- and never succumbing to death again, but positively life-giving. So Paul sets up this contrast here between the spirit and the flesh. He now, Paul now sees that what he was trusting in as the basis of, as the ground of his standing before a holy God, all that he was doing, all that he inherited as a good, high-pedigree Jew, and all that he built on that pedigree and his personal accomplishments, that was not of the Spirit, it was of his sinful flesh. It was, of, it was part and parcel with this fallen creation, this present evil age, this fallen world order that, was, that is ruled by the devil and not by the one true God. All his law obedience came from a sinful heart unto a sinful goal, his own glory, and not from a heart of faith and trust in the saving grace of God unto the glory of God. Paul now radically re-sees, sees differently his past life in Judaism, not to be one that got him pretty far as, as far as it went, but I just need to add Jesus onto it. It is now positively repudiated by him, and he hates it as worthless and as rubbish in view of the all-surpassing value of the risen Christ, the heavenly man who gives us a God-approved righteousness, a righteousness that is of another world, not of this fallen evil world. So Paul here, with that flesh and spirit distinction in mind, with that wrong understanding that he had prior to his conversion of circumcision, from verses 4 through 6, Paul turns to himself. He turns to his personal testimony to help the Philippians. He's not being an expressive individualist. He is helping this young church to see the significance, the, the deadly significance of what the Judaizers were teaching them in their, in their false doctrine. To say Philippian church, to say that salvation is by faith plus works, faith and circumcision, I will tell you of my own experience, Paul is saying, that that does you no good. In fact, Paul is saying in so many words, in verses 4 through 6, in so many words saying this, guys, if right standing with God were by works of the law, were by right performance, and could be earned by human hands, I would have done that 
multiple times over. But I did not do it when I saw the risen Christ on the Damascus road. I saw how filthy and how unworthy all my best works were in view of the surpassing value of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If righteousness were attainable by works, Paul definitely would have done so. But he he goes on in in chapter 3 to show, all that gain that I had, I get rid of it. I don't care about it anymore because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. To put it to a point, Paul is saying here and from one angle throughout chapter 3, that right standing with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not works of the law. So we see this in in three points this evening, verses 4, 5, and 6 roughly. First of all, our first point is Paul has reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul has, quote-unquote, reason for confidence in the flesh. This is verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, you, you realize that at the end of verse 3, into verse 4, when Paul talks about reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in what is worldly, what is of the earth, what is impotent, what can actually be attained by human hands but is no eternal good, putting confidence in these things, Paul is talking about the ground of his eternal life, the, the, the basis on which he can establish himself before, a living and, before the living and true God. Paul had reason for confidence in the flesh. That's the message that the Judaizers, the false teachers, were peddling to the Philippian church. You need to have confidence. You need to have a ground to stand on. You need to put your confidence in Jesus plus yourself, in the work of Jesus, which is great as far as it goes, plus your circumcision, plus your law observance. You need that, both of those things, faith plus works, to have solid ground to stand on. So Paul is saying here in verse 4, Oh, I, I remember those days. I remember that very well. I have, I, I have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I have a very impressive record, Philippians. I would not tell you about this if it were not useful to you. I'm not simply expressing myself. I'm trying to help you see that what the Judaizers are, are saying is positively wrong and harmful to your eternal standing with God. What Paul is, is enumerating here in all these lists of things that we'll look at momentarily, verses 5 and 6, is that he's taking the, the standards of the Judaizers. Okay, we've got faith plus works. You know, if you can add more works, that's great. More's better, but at least circumcision. Faith plus circumcision, at least do that. And Paul is taking that low bar, that small requirement, and looking at it from the, from the past perspective of his life as an unbelieving Jew and saying, faith plus circumcision? That's cute. I did a whole lot more than that. You think that's what you need for right standing with God? These Judaizers, Philippian church, these Judaizers have nothing on me. I did way more than what they're telling you to do. If salvation were by works, I would be saved. But I do not establish myself on that basis any longer. I establish myself on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let me tell you about my impressive pedigree. 
Paul thought he was, he was set before he saw the risen Christ on that Damascus road. He thought he was set for right standing with God, binding God into giving him what he wanted, earning something from God that he could demand from God. But Paul realizes, if you look with me down at the, toward the end of chapter 3, Paul was actually, before his conversion, verse 18, he was an enemy of the cross of Christ. His end was destruction. His God was his belly. And into verse 19, his mind was set on earthly things, which is just another angle on how he was putting confidence in the flesh. His mind was set on earthly things, law observance, not the heavenly quality, the otherworldly quality of the righteousness, the all-sufficient righteousness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is setting things up here for his autobiography in verses 5 and 6. Guys, take it from me. The Judaizers are dead wrong. They're lowering the bar from what I did. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter if it's a little bit of a law observance or a lot like I did, none of it will get you anywhere when you know the Lord Jesus as I know him, as you see him the way I've seen him, as the all-sufficient, glorious, heavenly man risen from the dead. So Paul moves on, verses 5 and 6, to list seven advantages that he put his confidence in prior to his conversion. Seven advantages. Four of them were inherited. They were his from birth. Three of them he achieved in his own personal working. And Paul is saying here, as he enumerates these things, these are reasons I thought I was worthy. These are reasons that I had confidence in meeting a holy God. These are reasons I thought I could demand from God, give me what you owe me because I have done all these things, and you owe it to me to give me right standing with you. That is the, the cold heart of legalism. As Voss says somewhere, legalists obey, but they do not adore. So let's look firstly, or I should say rather, let's look secondly at Paul's privileges. Our second main point, these are Paul's privileges, the things he inherited in verse 5. This is Paul's amazing Jewish pedigree, how he is a, a purebred in, in the people of God, from, stemming from the Old Covenant. And Paul zeroes in, after he mentions circumcision first of all, he starts out with the nation he was a part of, and then circles into tribe, and then to his, his family of origin, showing that at every level, at every point, there is no chink in my armor, there is no weak spot in this chain that I, that I have inherited and have built upon, have added to, I have a very impressive pedigree. If anyone could earn right standing with God, it would have been me. So that first thing he mentions, his first privilege in verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. This is in accordance with Leviticus 12, verse 3, among other, among other places in the Old Testament. Paul is signifying here in this first privilege, starting with circumcision, perhaps that was the issue, because that was the issue um, with the, the, the Judaizers. Paul was a part of God's people. He was a part of, Paul's, of, of God's people from the beginning. Now, these, these Judaizers, they may have been proselytes. They were probably adult converts to Judaism and to Christianity. As adults, as grown men, they would have 
done the difficult thing and been circumcised to add to, their, to the ground of their supposed right standing with God. They did this as adults. Paul is saying, not true of me. I did this in the right way. I did this on the eighth day of my existence, according to the book. I was circumcised not as an adult convert. I don't have a past in paganism. I didn't slum it up when I was a young person. I have done this rightly by the book from the beginning. I was circumcised on the eighth day, not in adulthood. I am a purebred, not a proselyte. Moving on to his next privilege in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Paul is emphasizing his pure Jewish lineage. He is from the nation of Israel. Again, going back generations, he has a, a pure lineage that goes to the, to the covenant people of God in Israel. He is not a first-generation convert to Judaism. His lineage goes back generations. He has all the privileges and had all the privileges from great-great-grandparents, perhaps, of being a good Jew. The, the kind of privileges you see in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. He had the adoption. He had the, the covenants, the, the, the giving of the law. He had temple worship. He had all the right things being of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, moves on there to, to talk about his tribe. Not only was he part of the right nation, he was part of the right tribe as well. For the significance of the tribe of Benjamin, let me read to you from Peter O'Brien's commentary on Philippians. This is just uh, one paragraph on the significance of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, was the only son born in the land of promise. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king and remained loyal to the house of David after the, the disruption of the monarchy. Together with the tribe of Judah, it formed the core of the new fellowship of people in Ezra 4. There were resettlements in Jerusalem and the surrounding territory of members of the tribe of Benjamin in Nehemiah 11. And F.F. Bruce has suggested that from some of these, Paul's family may have traced its descent. The tribe of Benjamin stood in high Jewish estimation. It had within its borders the city of Jerusalem and with it the temple. And so it was regarded as a special privilege to belong to it. His parents may have given him the name Saul after Israel's first king, the most illustrious member of the tribe of Benjamin in Hebrew history. To assert that he was of the tribe of Benjamin shows significantly that Paul was able to trace his descent, and it was from this highly regarded tribe in Israel that he sprang. So Paul is, is high level. He has a high level privilege and pedigree, not only coming from the right nation, but from one of the most privileged tribes in that nation, from which the, the first king came, around which the, the, the capital city or the main city of Jerusalem was. It is a big deal to be a part of the tribe of Benjamin. Moving on, the next privilege in verse 5, Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews or a a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. Again, this is not a a first-generation thing. This does not start with Paul. His pedigree goes back a long time. He has a very rich and pure Jewish heritage. Paul was a diaspora Jew, did not grow up in Palestine, but his parents 
kept him very closely connected with Palestine, with the Holy Land. Paul was not a, a lowly Greek speaker. Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Paul was strictly observant of Jewish customs. He did not assimilate to the culture in Tarsus. He had a very close connection with, with the, the Holy Land, with the, the land of the people of God. He was born in Tarsus, but his, he spent his formative years under the top Pharisee Gamaliel in Jerusalem, as Paul talks about his conversion in the latter part of the book of Acts. So these are very impe- impressive things, are they not? Very impressive if it is your intention to establish yourself putting confidence in the flesh of what is disworldly and transient and weak and passing away. If you're going to make that part of your resume, it might as well be good. Paul had a good beginning, but he also built upon it. He didn't just inherit all these things and then chuck it down the drain. He built upon this strong, fleshly, impotent, worth, ultimately worthless foundation. That moves us to the third and final point, to move from Paul's privileges to Paul's personal accomplishments. What did Paul do personally? What did he achieve in light of his privileges? That's from the end of verse 5 through verse 6. Outstanding achievements, not riding the coattails of his, of his parents and grandparents, but building on the, on the foundation, this fleshly foundation, a superstructure of works righteousness that in light of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ, he does not care about at all anymore because he sees that his works, his background, and his achievements are nothing compared to the otherworldly and infinitely significant and efficacious provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. What are Paul's personal accomplishments? Into verse 5, as to the law, a Pharisee. When it came to law observance, Paul aligned himself with the strictest sect. He didn't try to, to, to ride the coattails of a, of a lower, lesser school. He went to the top. He went to the strictest sect, the Pharisees, to observe the law in all its minute detail. From Galatians 1.14, we see that Paul was a top student in his class. Paul was educated by one of the top Pharisees, Gamaliel, as we see um, Paul talk about his, his personal testimony in the book of Acts. As a Pharisee, Paul sought separation from from what he considered the sinful world, although ultimately he was part of it in his legalism. He observed the Torah, the the Old Testament, as well as the oral law, the oral tradition of interpreting the Old Testament. Got to be safe, right? Got to have all our bases covered. Let's observe what God gave us and what man gave us in addition. So you see already in this first personal accomplishment, Paul was top of his class in a top school under a top teacher. He did very well for himself. He worked very hard. Next in his personal accomplishments, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Zeal being basically a devotion to something. Zeal, of course, is a good thing. Zeal for the Lord is a good thing. Devotion, focus upon something. Paul, in his in his zeal, he was focused, wasn't he? Prior to his coming to Christ, he was focused on himself, establishing his own standing before a holy God, 
earning something from God, and he wanted to get rid of and totally wipe off the face of the earth this way, as he calls it in in Acts, this group of good-for-nothings called Christians who think that right standing, the right standing I'm trying to earn in what I'm doing, that is received as a gift of grace? No, we can't have that. We need to exterminate this poisonous sect and get rid of it because this is Paul's spirit before his conversion. Paul would never, in his legalism, in his self-righteousness, all of us in our self-righteousness, I don't want to share glory with a sinner. I don't want to share eternal life with someone who didn't earn it. I've worked hard to get here. I am a, I'm a purebred from the people of God, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and I've worked hard to get where I am. You think I'm going to share eternal life with some thief on the cross who makes a, a deathbed profession of faith? Absolutely not. Now, maybe you and I would not re- react this way in our sin and self-righteousness, but Paul took it to the sword to get rid of this group of lazy people who want to receive eternal life as a free gift of God's grace, that cannot stand. Because when the gospel of free grace, when the message of salvation to the lost, to the ungodly, comes to the ears of a self-righteous sinner like Paul before his conversion, that inspires not love and humility, and yes, I am that sinner who needs grace, that inspires hatred. That brings out hatred of a gospel that would call me needy, that call me unworthy of eternal life. No, I am totally worthy based on what I've done. That is why, that is part of the reason why Paul wanted to get rid of this group of Christians, because they were insisting Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Paul was saying, oh no, I have lots to bring. And I have lots of reason to establish myself as worthy of of eternal life. Paul was was zealous and was a persecutor of the church. As he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, he was a, a persecutor of the church of God. There in that context in 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps talking about the shameful treatment he gave of the church that God established and that Jesus Christ purchased with his precious blood. He now sees as a believer how horrible this was to put to death those for whom Jesus Christ shed his precious blood. Those who realized, unlike, uh, unlike him, those who realized that they need grace, that they have nothing to establish themselves in or with. Paul sees how shameful this was. As a persecutor of the church, who even put Christians to death, who imprisoned them, who tried to get them to blaspheme the way, he had fervent devotion. He had a a whole-souled focus and love on human tradition and the human establishment of righteousness, his own fleshly works of the law. And he now sees, by God's grace, looking back at his life, prior to his conversion, prior to Christ redeeming him, how shameful this was to establish myself and my works and even to kill those for whom Jesus Christ shed his precious blood. But he was zealous. He was zealous that much. That is another accomplishment of him. He would not take grace for an answer from these 
observers of the way. Final, final thing in his list of accomplishments there in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is law righteousness, righteousness that originates from the law. Again, part of him putting his confidence in the flesh, what is of this present evil age, not of the age to come. The law is not able to give what Paul thought it was able to give. It's not able to give what the Judaizers thought it was able to give. Because the law, going back to the beginning, the covenant of works, it has been broken. And since it's been broken, justice must be satisfied. But these Judaizers, these these self-righteous legalists, and Paul before his conversion, they have such a low view of God's justice, thinking that it's not a big deal that the covenant of works has been broken. We'll just do a couple of things to offset the, the imbalance. They don't realize that breaking the covenant of an infinitely holy God merits and earns infinite wrath and displeasure. And to establish righteousness is not just a couple of observances here and there. It is perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience down to the most minute detail from the heart. They don't understand how high the bar actually is. As to law righteousness, Paul says prior to his conversion, he was blameless. Now, even as an unbeliever, even prior to seeing the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, Paul would not have said he was sinless. He's saying he was blameless. No charges could be brought against him. No eyewitness testimony could establish otherwise than that he was a good law-observing Jew. If and when he did sin, he would just do the sacrifices requisite to, to atone for them. If I did a bad thing, I would do a good thing to, to counteract it. He was blameless in that sense. But it was all external it was all on the outside. It was not from a heart of love for God's glory. It was from a wicked and corrupt heart of love for himself. He wanted righteousness, law righteousness, which would get him nothing, but thinking that he could twist God's arm to give him something that he thought he deserved. Is that love for God for his own sake? That is love for self, for self's sake. But all that changed when Paul saw the risen Christ. So to bring this to a conclusion, this is Paul, verses 4 through 6, this is Paul prior to his conversion, putting confidence in the flesh, what is thisworldly, what is impotent, what could never earn, what could never merit eternal right standing with an eternal and holy God. Paul trusted in old things. In terms of what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, for those who are in Christ, the old is passed away. Behold, the new is come. Paul is, was trusting prior to his conversion in the old things, in the things that wear out, the things that are human, that cannot earn God's favor. Paul was trusting in the realm of this fallen world, this present evil age, what is a part of this corrupted creation that could not get him out of this corrupted creation from his own sinful heart for his own glory, which was a life of death and the pathway to eternal death. But 
when Paul saw the risen Christ on that Damascus road, he saw a new order of things. He saw a new kind of righteousness. He saw a glory, a a resplendent and effulgent glory that far surpassed anything he ever inherited according to his pedigree or ever did with his own hands. He saw this blindingly bright glory, heavenly quality of, of righteousness that makes his earthly righteousness nothing in comparison. Paul saw this for the very first time on that that Damascus Road experience, and we can say in so many words, putting all things together, Paul would have thought something like, this is nothing like what I could ever do. This is nothing compared to where I've come from, what I've been doing. This is a new order of things. This is a heavenly righteousness. Who is this? Who is this Lord? And he repented, and he trusted in this heavenly Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though bearing the nail scar, nail scars in his hands and feet, lived by the power of a resurrection life, never to die again, with indestructible, heavenly, glorious life. Paul is emphasizing all these things. His past in, in flesh and in sin to emphasize to the Philippians, to emphasize to us, don't trust the false teachers. You think you can establish right standing with God based on what you do? Been there, done that. I tried it. It is a nowhere road. Take it from me. Take it from the risen Christ that I saw with my own eyes in blinding otherworldly glory. It is Him and Him alone. Only He can save miserable sinners like you and like me. Don't fall for the, for the Christ plus false gospel. Only take Christ. He is all sufficient. Paul, in terms of Isaiah 64, 6, Paul had to learn that he had to repent not just of his sin, but from the filthy rags of his righteousness. And that is you and I as well. We need to repent not only of the wrong we have done, but of the right we think that we can present to God as this is just like the righteousness of Christ, isn't it? This is acceptable to you in your court of law, isn't it? We need to repent of those polluted garments that are not just not getting us anywhere in God's sight, but that are positively reprehensible and abhorrent to a holy God. We bring nothing to Him, but we receive everything from Him. So, unbeliever or believer, here again and glory in afresh. Renounce your worthless righteousness and receive Christ's infinitely heavenly and all-sufficient, valuable righteousness for your right standing with God, and you will not be disappointed in Him. And may God be pleased to save sinners in this place with the all-sufficient righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ.